0: Hi everyone, I'm Andrew, and I'm Michael, and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation, and today we've got a very special guest to us, uh, Cody Beals. He's someone that we connected with fairly early on, and he's actually the main reason that Michael and I even know each other.
1: That's right. Uh, Cody dropped by the uh, the studio that I ran at the time, the uh, um, X3 Training Lab in Toronto, and this probably would have been... It was winter because it was, it was definitely snowy, but uh, it probably would have been um, 2016 or 2017, Cody, if you remember...
2: Yeah, it sounds about right, Michael.
1: And um, you were kind enough to uh, chat about your career with us and then uh, go on a run. And it was during that run that I remember you talking to uh, one of the other folks that was running with us about um, a novel way of uh, assessing a cyclist's aerodynamics without actually making a trip to Arizona or to another wind tunnel. And uh, that kind of piqued my interest because, you know, aerodynamics are everything. And, uh, then I asked you some follow-up questions and you connected me with Andrew of stack and that's how, uh, you know, that's how I got to know the guys. And that's how, uh, a lot of what's going on on this podcast, um, came to be.
0: Yeah. It's funny, all the small little choices you make in life and those little changes of direction, how that can lead to a big change in the end. So I guess, I guess that kind of falls under chaos theory, but it's pretty cool to look back and think of all those little changes. Um, but even meeting Cody, um, I don't remember how we had actually first met. I think we approached you when we had developed the trainer. And then when we came out to demonstrate it, we also demonstrated the virtual wind tunnel. And you kind of said, well, okay, the trainer's cool, but virtual wind tunnel is what... uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I saw you guys were doing innovative things in the trainer space, um, but that's already a very competitive space. What really intrigued me was the virtual wind tunnel. And I was particularly keen on it because I had just been to Arizona for the last two years with my bike sponsor, Ventum, to do testing in the wind tunnel. And they made it as easy as possible, but it's still a pain in the butt to have to get on a plane, lug all your gear there. It's an expensive process, takes a week basically. And so it was kind of mind-blowing to me that you could just step into my living room, scan me over the course of a minute, and then I could get pretty much 99% of the insights I could get in the wind tunnel, through the virtual wind tunnel.
0: But I think one of the reasons that we really got along from the start was just both of us being so focused on innovation and technology and just how it can shape the sport. And we just started talking about random things, I think, just different innovations and how it could shape your career, how you could use it to help your performance.
2: Yeah, I've, t- I've told Andrew, he's, he's one of the few people in the sport who I would just blindly follow or put my faith in if he recommends something. <laughs> That's and a lot of trouble. I, <laughs> uh, I was so drawn to Stack after after talking to Andrew and the guys there that I like to say I originally wanted to be an investor at a very, very modest level, but that was before their their wildly successful Kickstarter campaign. After which, they did not need my pitiful amount of money, so uh,
0: <laughs> it's, I don't look at it as a missed opportunity, but it just reflects how much I've always believed in their brand. Yeah, and it's been it's been a fun process just working with you back and forth, and we've got a few things that are kind of still on the early edges of development, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to bring them out next year, and hopefully it'll be a, a neat performance improvement. Um, but I'll leave that little teaser dangling there without going into much more detail. Yeah,
2: you thing. better you not know, date me. I'm pretty bad at keeping secrets, <laughs> and we, we talked about pretty, some pretty cool stuff before Kona this year, so we'll have to just shelf that for now, I think.
0: <laughs> so I think one of the things that that drew me to, to approaching you initially was how you crafted your online presence. You've got this reputation for being, um, in your words, a nerd in jocks clothing, and the one thing that really stood out to me was actually your article on... Uh, equating treadmill running to outdoor running. And I thought, man, this guy, this guy knows this stuff. Like, This is a really interesting article, a good analysis, uh, very technical, but also very um, approachable for a lot of people. So it brings the, I guess, your physics background to something that's of practical use, which often doesn't happen with some of those advanced degrees.
2: Yeah, I guess what I saw out there in the, in the triathlon world and the broader endurance sports community, it's a very technical sport by nature, triathlon. Um, but it's hard to communicate a lot of this information well. And I've, I've met some really brilliant people in the sport, but often communicating these key points to like your, your layman age group athlete or something is challenging. And I've always thought it's a really interesting challenge to try and take what is a pretty technical concept and be able to communicate it in a way that, that lay people will understand and be able to relate to. So that's kind of what I've tried to do with my blog over the years. And I built up most of that reputation early on. I've actually kind of moved away from doing those long feature length articles because, I was, I was spending like upwards of 24 (laughs) hours, you know, researching and writing them, especially that treadmill physics one. Uh, but the cool thing is it's all there now as a library and I can kind of, uh, drag up posts from time to time and repost them and they hit lots of fresh new eyes. So that's cool.
0: Yeah. I think you just reposted the treadmill one, didn't you?
2: Yeah. And it always generates some discussion because it's like this this age old debate among runners. What's easier or harder, the treadmill or outdoor running? (laughs) Yeah, I
1: actually just reposted that article again because um, I I wrote my own and then I, you know, years ago and then I found yours and I think, wait, this is way better. So rather than reinventing that wheel and uh, I've posted it, you know, years ago when I found it, but then just recently to a a run group that I work with, um, posted it again just so that they, you know, start to buy into the treadmill process, which is a really useful tool
2: when it's uh, dumping snow, which is doing in, in Toronto right now. Absolutely and that that article was really limited like I came at it from a really just a physics standpoint um you know manipulating equations and stuff with a, a very basic model for running I had a really interesting opportunity come up recently uh Dr Jamie Burr a really respected researcher at the University of Guelph reached out to offer to let me look at it from a metabolic standpoint like uh you know rigging up a uh, gas exchange testing uh-huh. and looking at it from heart rate and even um you know running power meters and stuff so there's a lot of ways you can come at that treadmill versus outdoor running problem. And I I barely scratched the surface with that physics oriented post.
1: So what did you find? Can you, can you talk about the,
0: what you discovered with that testing?
2: I haven't actually done the testing yet, but I I pulled my Instagram followers about whether I should take them up on the opportunity. And everyone, everyone said hundred percent. Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, it's it's not them stepping into the test chamber.
2: I'm just kind of scared to get rigged up to a VO2 card and told to turn myself inside out
0: on the treadmill. Uh, That's fun. (laughs) That's always fun. it's a safe space as long as the treadmill doesn't blow up which uh on a personal note don't let cody use (laughs) your own personal treadmill because he'll turn it into a pile of smoking dust i destroyed andrew's treadmill last night oh no what happened he's too fast apparently i was uh,
2: (laughs) i was two-thirds of the way through a 90-minute run which i thought was like not not a super strenuous run this is not a backdoor brag like it wasn't that fast (laughs) (laughs) andrew said it was on his last legs anyways well there you go. Now you have a you have reason to buy an excellent
1: treadmill, Andrew.
0: That's right. I'll see if I can expense it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One of our sponsored athletes broke it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a business expense. <laughs> Seems legit.
0: <laughs> But uh, yeah. no, I'd definitely be bragging about that if I'd broken a treadmill. So <laughs> <laughs> I've broken a treadmill before, but it just didn't start. It wasn't like I was in oh, the middle heck. of a run. <laughs> the the metabolic testing, though, is something that's super interesting because uh, we recently had this discussion here. Uh, like Michael, you and I have had the discussion, but also within Four Eyes, talking about um, just run power meters and the efficacy of them. Um, and it brought up a lot of questions how – metabolically, um, there's a lot going on in your body. It's not like cycling where you're just pushing down on the pedals, but with running, you've got all of these other muscle interactions going on, and that's where most of the metabolic load is. It's not necessarily force times speed at the, the ground, but there's a lot of other things that you're pushing against internally. Um, so I'd really be keen to see how that test goes. Um, just not so much for the comparison of um, indoor versus outdoor running, but just the metabolic cost of, of running and how that compares to the, the force measurements and force plates and things like that.
2: And, and I'm also curious, like I've, I've done probably three quarters of my training on the treadmill uh, over the last couple of years. I'm a big believer in the value of treadmill running. I've learned though that I have to introduce some small but significant amount of outdoor running in order for that fitness to translate. And I suspect what we'd see is that I've become very efficient and well-adapted to treadmill running, in particular over the winter when I'm barely running outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I've learned that it can, can kind of give me an inflated sense of my fitness. So I could take my 70.3 goal race pace in the run for example what I'd expect based off the treadmill workouts I'm doing I've learned from experience I almost have to knock a couple percent off of like a minute or two to reflect the reality outside. Right. Yeah, and I think
1: uh I think that that echoes a lot of what of what I've seen about it too. I um, stride the you know kind of the market leader in consumer run power meters anyway. They, uh, they've done a lot of validation on treadmills and metabolic costs. So they've rigged up a, a whole bunch of athletes. And so they say that their algorithm, but that's, exa- that's essentially what they're doing is that they're creating an algorithm to to validate the correlation between what their accelerometers and gyroscopes are seeing at your foot to the actual metabolic activity in the athlete's body. Um, so it, I, you know they say, they say their stuff works really well. And uh, I think it, uh, it does bear out.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting, but it it ends up being kind of an indirect measurement. So unless you have a, a VO two cart, you're not really capturing the the metabolic cost. Um, it's the same way that there's uh, I can't remember the company right now, but they would measure oxygen saturation in the muscles, and they use that as a proxy for lactate buildup. Um,
2: yeah, there's a, I've done that testing with my with my coach previously, oh, okay. so I know what you're talking about. Um, it, it, there's a couple. Moxie is the big one. That was that was who I did the testing with. Yes. And it didn't really lead any, so with all this, all this testing and stuff, and there's like an infinite number of testing these days for me, it always comes back to, do I gain any actual actionable information from mm-hmm. these test results? Cause I've done so many tests over the years and in a lot of cases, it's an, it's, it's a curiosity. The results are interesting. They definitely pique my curiosity, but at the end of the day, it's not functionally changing how I approach my training or recovery. And I'd kind of put that, that testing under that category as well. Um, one interesting thing I did see is that I generated way more lactate in the swim than the bike or the run. So we did basically all out time trials to failure over the course of two to three minutes in all three disciplines. And, uh, my cycling, I generated way less lactate than the swim. Surprisingly.
0: Hmm. I wonder if that's just the higher muscle recruitment in the swim you're using your upper that's, body as well.
2: That's kind of what I speculated, but man, the bike test certainly felt more painful in a way. So <laughs> didn't necessarily line up with perceived exertion.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I've never I've never done lactate testing for swimmers, but I, my initial guess would be is because swimming is hypoxic, right? And at a, especially if you're doing all out efforts, is you're limited in. Well, most most swimmers, depending on stroke rate and you know breathing preference, but most swimmers are limited by the amount of air they can actually pull into their lungs. So you you are in the swim especially hard swims I, I i believe that you are relying more on the glycolytic uh, energy system than than in the other sports when you can breathe at whatever frequency
2: you choose that's a good point michael and, and test protocol could definitely influence that like it's a common bike test protocol to do a really high-end effort to, to blow out your anaerobic capacity whatever you want to call it yep. and then do a more aerobic effort and you could probably do something in the pool similarly right
0: yeah it doesn't sound like a lot of fun either way though
2: It was, it was pretty brutal. Yeah. I'm not keen to repeat that actually, especially if it didn't actually change how I train. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's an excellent point. You're right, Cody. There's
1: so much out there that, that purports to, to help or to give more insight, but if it's not actionable, you know, actionable information and actually physically changes the way you train or, you know, changes training targets or, or uh, focus of training, then, then absolutely it's not really that worthwhile. Uh, On the subject of the MOXIE or similar muscle oxygen sensors, The I have I've done very little research into them, but the most compelling um, case for them that I've heard is not really using them necessarily as, um, you know, a proxy for lactate testing, but rather to determine whether or not you're more uh, centrally or peripherally limited. So whether or not the the limitation is in your, you know, cardiorespiratory system or in the muscle blood supply system. So for instance, as an example, is if you're desaturating oxygen in the working muscles, let's say in the, you know, the quadricep, let's say in, in cycling, then perhaps you're more peripherally limited than centrally limited.
0: Yeah, that's uh well, that's something that I think I need to dig into a little bit more before I make any kind of comment on <laughs> and try to yeah, that's, that's uh,
2: beyond my pay grade right now. <laughs> but it's like I
0: have this reputation
2: for being a really data-oriented, science-driven athlete. Um, but really, over the course of my career, that was maybe true earlier on. And it's, it's still, I, I keep on top of the literature and stuff or try to, obviously, there's some blind spots. But really, as I've gotten deeper into my pro career, I've relied more on qualitative metrics to, to monitor readiness to train and uh, performance and fitness and form and all of that then I've relied on, on like more quantitative metrics and testing. So it's kind of maybe the opposite pattern of what some people would expect. So can you give us an
0: example of how you would have done that throughout your career? Like initially?
2: Yeah. So, so initially I had all these spreadsheets where I was tracking everything from, you know, morning wake up time to latest test results across all three disciplines to, you know, nutrition. I worked with a, with a dietitian for a while and was obsessively tracking that and weighing portions and stuff. Um, and yeah i had a long interesting experiment with heart rate variability which ultimately didn't really turn out to provide any new and actionable information like i was talking about before and so now it kind of comes down to some fundamental questions i ask myself every day and this has come up in a couple podcasts so apologies to anyone who's hearing this again but basically i'm asking myself am i how's my mood first of all because that's a really good that's a really good overall barometer for your for your just your your i think you readiness to train your, your how you're absorbing training in general Another important question is, am I executing my training as I originally planned it? Um, Because a lot of the time, I have like an overall periodization structure for my training, but I'm I'm very flexible on a day-to-day basis. So I might have a plan for a few key sessions I want to hit in a week, but ultimately I'm waking up each morning and deciding how to get the most out of each day. However, if I find that I'm truly really flying by the seat of my pants and neglecting that that overall plan and just kind of winging it, that's a red flag that I tend to be overreaching. Um, Sleep is another thing I still monitor but more more qualitatively. I find if I'm sleeping poorly that's a sign that I'm overreaching. So these are the kinds of questions that I ask myself on a daily basis and I find it gives me more interesting information about my my state or my readiness to train than uh, any of these quantitative metrics I've used in the past.
1: You know, this is uh, you say that this this may come as a as a surprise to some listeners, but um, kind of you know from a coaching perspective and, and paying attention to the literature, this doesn't surprise me at all. I think there is more of a of a shift right now. I wouldn't say away from quantitative um, measurements because uh, I think those are still important and there um, there are more and more useful ones coming out all the time. But I think people are starting to pay more attention. It used to be. All quantitative all the time, but I think now there's more attention being paid to the qualitative component. And I'm I'm 100 on the same page, Cody. I think it uh, it does uh, sometimes in a much simpler format tell us what's going on.
2: Yeah, oh, I just thought of another example. Totally agree with you, Michael. Uh, that came up at my talk the other day. One thing I've I was very spe- uh, skeptical of the value of initially, but now I'm, I've embraced is. How, if I look in the mirror, how's my face looking? <laughs> and this is not like a vanity thing, but but really when I'm training hard, I show a lot of fatigue in my face. Like not just, it's partly deep bags under my eyes and, you know, gauntness to my cheeks and stuff. And it's partly to do with leanness, but it's also just uh, how my body's responding to training load. And it's kind of eerie how well my parents who've seen me my entire life can just look me in the face and say, you are training too much right now. You're overreaching, my dad in particular. And he's been more accurate than any, any other kind of more advanced metric tracking I've ever done. So, and I've kind of been able to see that too, like like arriving in Kona and seeing 50 to 60 of the best men and women pro triathletes athletes in the world, you can kind of see who's shown up overcooked, you know, everyone there is looking, is looking lean and kind of emaciated to some extent, but, um, it's hard to describe even to put into words, but there's people with a certain hollowness to their face, a sallowness of the complexion, the sunken eyes, you can just kind of spot it and say that person's overdone it and they've left their race in training. And it's something I've gotten better and better at. And it's almost kind of like a, a sixth sense for people that have spent a lot of time around the sport, talking to other athletes and coaches. Hmm. So do you use any kind of tool? Like uh, there's, there's, a, you know,
1: dozens of them out there that are, that allow you to uh, record this stuff. Or is it just those,
2: those three or four things that you jot down for yourself? Or do you just keep it in your memory and you don't write it down? So at this point, it's mostly in memory. I do think there's some value to getting back to actually tracking more. So I want to I wanna start filling out my, my daily metrics and training peaks and uh-huh. change I want to make. I've had a lot of trouble periodizing body weight and composition. Um, and coming from a background of being too lean chronically and, and you know, borderline disordered eating and relative energy deficiency in sport, pretty bad case of that. I really was reluctant to manipulate weight and body composition deliberately. It just really felt like playing with fire. But I think I'm at a point now where I have to take greater ownership of that because several instances over the past few years, I just abruptly find myself way too light given the phase of training I'm in. You know, it was after I bought my house and I was renovating and training, I got like my lightest weight of the last couple of years in January, which is absurd timing. And even this year, I kind of suddenly found myself way too light about three or four weeks before Kona and then got sick after. So it's at the point now where I'm realizing this is something I need to track on a on a daily basis, I think. So what I'm going to do, I think, is get a uh, Wi-Fi connected smart scale. Then I can just step on the scale every day. I don't even have to look at the number, but it'll feed that info automatically to my my training peaks or somewhere else. And then, you know, once a week or once a month, I can sit down and kind of analyze the overall trends and not get too caught up in the the day-to-day noise. So that's something I definitely have to change because my current laissez-faire approach with that hasn't been yielding the best results so far. No, that makes a lot of sense.
0: The uh, the current approach you have is probably still one step better than the people who obsess about the the weight, um, even if it's not ideal. Like there, I know there are people, and it's come a lot, come out a lot in the media lately, uh, especially with um, female collegiate runners, where their coaches say you need to be lighter, you need to be leaner, mm-hmm. and the the body image and the body composition problem has led to a lot of injuries. Um, you might get that one really good performance, but then. <clears throat> but your body is brittle essentially, and you break after one misstep or one training session that's just a bit too hard. And I think that's I think that's a big problem and it's good that people are starting to address it, but it seems to be more systemic than just a few coaches. Um, the other thing I've heard an- anecdotally is that uh, looking at pro tour riders in the past couple of years, they've gone from showing up to, at uh, the start of a tour, being at their target race weight to being slightly overweight, which is not really overweight by any traditional metric but <laughs> um but a little bit more weight on them because they know that they can't keep up the caloric intake to to match their output each day. Um so I think people are starting to shift that mindset a little bit but it's it's very much embedded in the culture that you need to be lean in order to be fast. And looking at Kona like just as as an observer being there it is insane how lean everyone is and how well <laughs> it's it's the place where body image problems I think are born. And I think some of that is born out of, out of vanity.
2: People want to look in the mirror and see a ripped six pack and stuff. And talking about tracking weight earlier, I want to stress that I'm not tracking weight presupposing that I have an ideal target race weight. I think that's, I don't think, I don't actually think it's a fixed target. It's more of a window and it's also a moving window over time. So I've had people often assume that I run better when I'm lighter. And I've, I've seen in all my, all my monitoring of this data and analysis, no evidence to support that. Within reason, you know, so within a very broad range, like maybe a 10 pound window, which is, which is a lot on my frame. It feels like I don't see any real association with performance. However, when I get too light, then I start to see degradation in performance, usually through just getting sick, you know, sleeping more poorly, lower sleep quality, and that tends to lead to illness or just some kind of immunocompromisation. So I'm starting to wonder if I wouldn't be racing a little bit better with, with five extra pounds. You know, if I could snap my fingers in the start line and drop those five pounds, the physics <laughs> say I'm going to be faster. But it's the process of getting there, I think, that really mm-hmm. costs you.
0: Yeah, because you have to underfuel and essentially you're not providing all the nutrition your body needs because that's what weight loss is, where you're you are at a deficit.
2: Exactly. And and gaining I've gained about 12 pounds since my pre-cona minimum right now um, at the start of December when we're recording this. And I feel like a new man, honestly. So one thing I've noticed is that when I'm really lean, I'm a lot more prone to anxiety. So uh, just everything generates anxiety when I'm when I'm really, really on that razor's edge of, of fatigue and, and leanness. Now I find I'm more resilient physically, for sure, uh, less prone to injury, but also more resilient psychologically as well. It's just easier to, to you know, grind through my day and get through any obstacles in my path, ba- basically. So that's been something I've only become aware of fairly recently. And that makes a lot of sense because,
1: um, you know, obviously, and this is a trivial thing to say, but all the processes in our body use the energy that we provide them through food, and uh, one thing i 've re- i 've learned recently is that the um, uh, it's it's the immune system that is primarily in charge of recovery and adaptation of, to endurance exercise. Well, any exercise, and so um, that's why oftentimes when we train a lot, our immune systems are depressed. But the other thing to understand is that the immune system is very energy hungry system. So you know we talk a lot about the energy needs of exercise. like how many calories do you you know burn in an hour of, of cycling, and how do you replenish that food in the middle of that workout? Uh, but we pay a little bit less attention to the, the at rest energy needs of an athlete. And they're higher than, than the at rest energy needs of a similarly sized. So similar muscle mass, let's say, um, uh, you know relatively sedentary human being because of that relationship with the uh, the immune system and uh, and adaptation to to training load uh, training load and what you said too about um the psychological well-being Cody that that totally resonates too because you know the brain at rest is probably the the most energy hungry organ that we have so if you are chronically you know deprived of of calories the brain is not going to be functioning optimally and uh and it's its ability to deal with the stresses of life are gonna be, you know, not as good as they could be otherwise.
2: Absolutely. So so personally I I plan to extend this experiment out and again I never have a, a target race weight in mind, but I'm gonna come into next season heavier than I've been probably since I was an eighteen year old in high school. And I have a pretty good feeling about it based on all the experimentation over the last few years.
1: Yeah, and if you think about it from a, you know, you're you're a physics, uh, you you did physics in university, so you you understand this probably better than I do. But uh, from a physics perspective, there's very little cost to extra weight in the water. I would say zero cost Um, on the bike. Yeah, sure, you're fighting gravity, and maybe on a very technical course that plays some kind of role. uh, But it's minimal. It's really in the run that that you know you do pay a little bit of a penalty for weight. But to your point, if you've tested it and you're you operate with, you know, you, you, you can maintain the same kind of pace for, in a in a 10 pound window, then it makes all the sense in the world to be maybe at the heavier end of that 10 pound window.
2: Yeah. I would say the swim absolutely heavier is a plus the bike. It's pretty neutral. Um, we talk a lot about Watts per, Watts per kilogram power to weight ratio, because it's easier to quantify. But as you guys both know, the more relevant metric on most, tri- most triathlon courses would be Watts per CDA, your Watts to drag ratio, so my, my watts per kilogram threshold has stayed pretty flat around, you know, five watts a kilogram plus or minus a bit, depending on fitness. It's been my watts per CDA that has improved over the course of my triathlon career. And on our mostly relatively flat triathlon courses, that's the key metric. And yeah, the, the run weight counts for something. Um, but I think especially you can draw a distinction here between Ironman racing, which is my focus now, and shorter distance racing. At the end of the day, it's kind of mon- mind-boggling to me that that Ironman world-class pace is like 345 per kilometer. Now, that's fast to some people, but for a world-class Ironman athlete, that's that's so far below their threshold or what they could run for an open 5K. It's not a fast pace. Sure. So obviously, music say the weight still matters, but it's not mattering in my experience as much as if I was trying to run an open 10K or something. It's more just about resilience and having some extra reserves on board where weight can actually help you, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the argument goes that the heavier you are, the greater the metabolic cost of running
1: is, and then and then it becomes a question of you know do you have enough in the tank to finish your Ironman run off the bike, given that you're a little bit heavier, given that the cost is a little bit higher. But uh, um, you're probably splitting hairs at the end of that at the end of that marathon. That's what I think.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that, uh, not that I'm comparing myself to Cody in any way, but the one thing I- You have to break that- a
1: treadmill first, Andrew. We, we've established that. <laughs> yeah. It's a rite of passage.
0: <laughs> yeah, someday. Someday. That's what I aspire to. Uh, but just from a personal standpoint, I've always performed better when I'm slightly heavier. Um and that was back in the days that I used to do a lot of weightlifting. Um, I found that <clears throat> when I was eating more, I was stronger. Uh, when I've been training on my bike, when I've been eating more and slightly heavier, my threshold has been higher. So I think for me as an amateur athlete who's at a completely different level, it's um, it still plays out and it still follows that same trend
1: yeah I would I would totally echo that especially with uh, if you've got a life that's busy and which is like pretty much everybody I know um you know my my issue often is the fact that I've you know young kids and so sleep's not always the best and uh, and the kind of the everyday stresses of life are higher and anytime I've tried to modify my eating to manage body composition so I've got the opposite problem of Cody I've never I'm no, I've, I haven't, I've never in my life been too lean. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometimes in the off season, like, you know what, this is the good time to uh to shed a few uh percentage of percentages of body fat. Anytime I try to restrict eating or, you know, do any kind of uh yeah, calorie monitoring to do that. Uh, I end up getting sick, like right away. It's the first thing that happens to me, I catch colds. And again, with kids, I have, uh, you know, I'm exposed to more of the viruses. So it's it's been off the table for me for a little while, for that reason, specifically. And uh, again, obviously not comparing myself to Cody, but just giving uh, a different amateur athlete perspective.
2: I think it's a really similar experience across the board. Um, I might have higher training load than you guys. But in terms of overall stress load if you're taking into account lifestyle stress on top of training and other psychological stress we're probably comparable and you know your body doesn't do a great job differentiating between all those different sources of stress so i would say our experiences align probably more closely than you might expect based on just race results or something fair point so now, I wanted to uh,
1: bring the conversation back to Andrew's or, an original question about uh, Cody crafting his uh, his training and his persona around being, um, you know, an open book, as he says. And especially, uh, my my specific question in this is: How do you uh, select your sponsors, especially now that you are, you know, you are a fairly high profile athlete and you probably have a little bit more um, leeway with who you work with? How do you think about who you want to work with from a sponsorship perspective in order to um, build your brand, but also make sure that you're getting the best equipment and the most optimal training support that you can. I'm
2: flattered that you use the word crafted my persona, crafted in particular, because it implies that this was like a a premeditated plan kind of thing. And it really wasn't like, I don't have any background or education in business. So I've been learning all this on the fly. And I have some pretty good mentors and advisors around me who have helped. But really i've had the best response when i try and just put as much of my authentic self out there as possible and obviously when you're when you're representing you know close to 10 companies and now with a you know follower count into the tens of thousands and stuff i have to be a little bit filtering of what i of what i put out there but for the most part being really open and honest has come very naturally to me and maybe even i have to put the brakes on oversharing sometimes because that's never a good look <laughs> with respect to sponsorship yeah i've definitely learned over the years what is a good fit for me and now having had some more success over the last couple of years, I have more offers coming across my desk. And I think one of the most important things is I've learned to just be really ruthless about being upfront about my needs, identifying their needs upfront, not wasting anyone's time. And the bottom line is that I end up saying no to nine out of every 10 offers and only a small fraction will I actually pursue and you know set up a call or something like that. It's also important to me to cap my sponsorship roster at a pretty low number so I'm not working directly with an agent anymore. And for most of my career, I've just been entirely self-represented and I really enjoy that business side of the sport, but it can also be quite a burden at times. Sure. So in my experience, there's no exact number, but around eight companies is pretty important for me. I think any more than that, and I'm starting to compromise on the quality of the services I can offer. And I just start to get too stressed out about it. There were times this year it was my best year ever with, with respect to sponsorship, but there were times where I was spending way more time at my desk than, than actually doing my fundamental activities as a professional athlete, like training and racing. So I didn't love that at times. It's the balance that I really enjoy. Another thing that informs uh, the sponsors I select, I guess, is I kind of look at it like a balanced investment portfolio. So I don't want to be too far tipped into any one sector. So it's important to me to have some non-endemic sponsors. You know, that is to say sponsors outside the triathlon or or endurance sports industry and also some ones within the industry. And also that that balanced portfolio approach, that also reflects the kind of compensation I'm looking for. So I don't want all my sponsors paying just bonuses where it's entirely contingent upon me racing really well. It's nice to have a mix of base salary, bonuses, things like travel stipends, and maybe even other perks like equity or something. So it's nice to have just this this broad mix of sponsors. So I've kind of skirted the subject, but at the end of the day, who do I actually work with? Well, I have a soft spot for really lean, nimble, small startup phase companies. I think that's really cool. So if you look at my sponsors right now, since Stack was acquired by 4Eyes, it's changed a little bit, but I do really like working with these, these smaller up and coming companies, in addition to working with some other big well-established companies like you know sketchers and, and Sunto, and i'd even put ventum in that category now though when i started with them they were very much a startup i'm also looking for companies that reflect some of my philosophy in terms of being you know all about science and very data driven and there are certain key pieces of equipment if we're talking about endemic triathlon sponsors that i'm just not willing to compromise on so things like bike things like shoes power meter trainer some some of my most indispensable pieces of equipment, the sponsors would have to pay me an absurd amount of money to compromise on those things in any way. So as a result, I've held out in some cases for years and years to find the right fit. Um, With my bike sponsor, I talked to maybe a dozen companies before I ended up signing with Ventum because I simply wasn't willing to compromise on that. Same goes with nutrition before signing with Vega this year. So I think it's important to identify the key pieces for you, what you're willing to compromise on, what you're not willing to compromise on, and then stick to your guns. Hmm. yeah that's a great answer thanks
0: yeah and one thing that I found quite interesting is I know talking to you in the past uh, specifically regarding nutrition you had done kind of your own homemade nutrition so it's interesting to see that uh, that you went from that to to working with vega as and it it speaks to I guess the quality of their product if you're If you weren't willing to compromise before and now you're moving to them
2: well to be clear part of the reason vega was a really good fit is that they don't currently offer what i'd consider any on course nutrition products they have a a low calorie electrolyte product which is great which i use in training but they don't have a product in their line yet that allows me to mix my super dense gel like 800 calorie plus (laughs) bottles that i race with so I'm totally open about the fact, and they're aware, that I still mix my own blend for racing. And the cool thing is we're having discussions about maybe developing something that looks like my race blend to eventually introduce into their product line. It's obviously nice. a huge company, and these things move slowly. But another thing I really value in my sponsor relationships, and 4Eyes exemplifies this, is an ability to have R&D input. Because I really think that if I wasn't pursuing pro triathlon right now, I'd want to be in a position like Andrew's. And Now it's my turn to say not to compare myself to Andrew, <laughs> who built up Built up a very successful company, which was acquired in a matter of years, uh, which I really respect. But that's the kind of thing I'd want to be doing with my time.
0: I would just say be cautious of the amount of stress that you put on yourself if you <laughs> want to go
2: down that path. Yeah, I think one or two days in Andrew's shoes would uh, chew me up and spit me out. I talk all about stress as a pro athlete, but what do I know?
0: No, I think every, every, different uh, kind of career has its own stress. So it's hard to compare the two. Um, A lot of people wouldn't be able to sit in your shoes and maybe it'd be hard to cross over in the other direction as well.
2: In in triathlon, it it really varies. Like there are times I'm just coming off my downtime right now and it was an extremely low key month of downtime. But the flip side is the month before Kona was one of the most acutely stressful months of my life. So there's a real ebb and flow to it for sure.
0: So let's let's talk about, maybe not the Kona performance specifically, because I know you've talked about that in the past, but um, just the, the lead up to Kona, because it's an interesting event where there's so much marketing focus on it. And um, in a lot of cases, there's a lot of requirements from sponsors where they want to have that presence there. They want to have you speaking to their product, but you also have to balance this because <clears throat> your value as a sponsored athlete is in performing well. So you can't com- overcommit yourself. Otherwise, your performance is sacrificed, but at the same time, you need to be there to earn the money that they're paying you, I guess.
2: It's a really difficult balance to strike, and I think some people assume that just saying no to all of your sponsors and ruthlessly prioritizing your own interests in your racing is in everyone's best interest because really, you best serve your sponsors if you have a good result, and that may be the case. However, if you say no to every single media request or sponsor request leading to the race, you better have a good result. You're putting more, more pressure on the result in a way. So I tried to strike a balance between fulfilling sponsor obligations, making some good appearance dollars just to be there in Kona, which was nice, um, and also trying to prioritize the race performance. I didn't strike the right balance. I realize that now. So I was out at the expo way too much. I, I agreed to way too many things every day, and it was I bit off way more than I could chew. Some of the best professionals in Kona, the best performers year after year, you barely see them during race week. And race week was really just the tip of the iceberg. The whole month leading into Kona was at a really frantic pace for me. You're trying to finish off some of the biggest training you're doing all year. It's also getting towards the end of the season. So you're, you're very, you're getting tired physically, psychologically, you're not as well equipped to handle that training load and that stress load. And it's also the time when sponsors and media are more demanding than any other point during the year. So it was a, tr- a truly humbling experience. Like I thought I could, I thought I could roll in the Tuesday of race week. And, you know, tick off a couple boxes in terms of appearances and then have my, have my best result in the race course. I ended up having to rebook my flight. I stayed in a terrible neighborhood that was way too far from everything else. Uh, and I there remember
0: was, there were cars that were uh, basically burnt out or stripped out on your street.
2: Yeah, at the start of my block, there was like a, a car up on blocks with the wheels missing and stuff that was all burnt out. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Um, I, I've taken a lot from it. And initially right after, so I had, I had, a, I had a mechanical At the midpoint of the race and it provided a very legitimate excuse to to drop out of the race and I, I could have kept going after I after I got it fixed but I'd sacrificed any opportunity to have a good result then and there were a lot of reasons I chose to not finish that race but I think chief among them is that I was just so burnt out at that point physically and psychologically that after that mechanical hit and I lost 15 plus minutes on the side of the road I wasn't ready to do a solo time trial to the end of the race. And furthermore, I think that I didn't want to have like a really negative, traumatic, emotional experience out in this race course because I do plan to come back. So, you know, I could have walked, jogged the four hour marathon or something and, and, and finished the race. And in 70.3 racing, I've always chosen to do that out of respect for my competitors and for the race course. But in Kona, selfishly, I wanted to come back there with a clean slate next time. I didn't want to have all that emotional baggage of a, a really miserable, embarrassing experience out on the run course. And I'm not totally at peace with that decision. Um, so I'm, I'm still, it's still something I'm processing because I've never, I've never voluntarily chosen to DNF a race like that, even, even with the good excuse of a mechanical. So it was a bummer. But looking at that, it's really, really informed how I'll approach that race in the future. The entire experience, I just absorbed so much from that. And I'm actually kind of cautiously optimistic and excited about going back now. Because I learned more things about being there that week and being in the mix over the first half of the race than I could have from studying a decade's worth of race footage or talking to other people.
0: And you always hear comments from people saying that Kona, you never do well your first time at Kona. Um, No one ever expects a first timer to have a great result. And I think it's mostly assumed that it's the race, but. The circus around the race is probably just as big a part of that because once you start to get to that level, you're in the top 50 in the world. So it's there's so much more pressure and stress on you outside of the actual race itself.
2: Yeah, the race itself. People ascribe all these mystical properties to the island. I'm just not buying it. Like It's, it's really hot. It's, it's flat for the most part. It's monotonous. It's windy. I understand these variables. I've raced in similar conditions before, and now I've raced in them in Kona. They're, they're nothing that special. I think what makes the race so unique and so challenging is all the fanfare and demands leading up to it. That's really what, what chews athletes up and spits them out leading into it. And a large fraction of the pro field, I would say a third of the pro field shows up in Kona with no intention of being competitive. They're just there to fulfill obligations. Another third has best intentions of having a good race there, but leaves their, leaves their best performance out on the race course in the weeks prior and doesn't deliver on race day and only a third of the field is actually showing up in Kona competitive for a top 10 finish and making that a priority of the season and showing up with the the fitness and the wherewithal and the focus to make it happen.
1: Hmm. That's a, that's a really interesting perspective because you do hear a lot of people talk about how how Kona is its own its own thing because of the conditions but that's uh yeah it's uh, it's interesting to hear that it's it's all of the um, perhaps psychological stress and, and fatigue surrounding the the whole experience rather than the course itself.
0: So I don't want to dwell on Kona too much because I'm sure you've had enough talking about it in the, <laughs> the past month or two. Uh, but I guess the one thing we focused on a lot is just your, your attention to detail with training. We've mentioned a little bit equipment in selection of sponsors, but when it comes to actually preparing your gear for a race – Um, how do you make the selection, uh, for a lot of the equipment you use, like shoes, for example, or, you know, why do you race with, or without a heart rate monitor or things like that? What, what drives those technical choices and, and how would you, I guess, recommend other people approach some of those decisions?
2: Good question, Andrew. So I definitely keep on top of the new developments in the sport and, you know, my relationship with four eyes definitely helps with that because they're really at the cutting edge. Um, and I, I, I've run some very boutique prototype kind of parts in the past and made decisions based on the very latest and greatest things. But my experience there has actually pushed me back towards being a little bit more conservative. I've had, I've had some parts fail during races or in training in spectacular ways. So now I'm, 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 it's a balance between looking for 99% of the performance gains, but perhaps leaving a minute amount on the table just in favor of being a little bit precautionary. So I could definitely shave probably a kilogram off my bike if I, if I went with the, the very best, lightest boutique parts. And maybe I could find a few more grams of drag if I went with an even more aggressive position that compromised on things like comfort and handling. But I kind of tinged that, that radical performance-driven mindset with a little bit of conservatism just because, for one thing, traveling with your bike is a real torture test, as I've learned. So my, my little portable bike mechanic case I travel with I feel like every time I travel, I add another part or another tool to it to solve some kind of unforeseen issue that's popped up. And just when I think I have it all, I I have some new experience that, you know, forces me to add something else.
0: Well, as I learned in Cozumel, um, you can't predict everything. There's always something weird that that throws a a wrench in the works. And uh, yeah, it's the best you can do is try and prepare for what you know, and then just deal with the things that you don't expect. Uh, and take it in stride. So having a little bit of a relaxed attitude may help a bit, but it's it's never easy to get into that position.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Cody, you've talked a little bit about, um, you know, you being excited to go back to Kona. So what is uh, 2020 looking like for you?
2: Well, your timing's pretty good. I'm just starting to think about my 2020 season. So there's some kind of givens on my race schedule that I can pretty much already commit to. Uh, I want to go back to Eagleman, which I've raced five of my six years as a pro, won three times. Um, so I want to go back there and reclaim my title there. Uh, I also want to defend my title at Mont Blanc. I want to be the Cam Brown of Mont Blanc eventually. I want to do that race every year and I want to win it every year. That said, though, I recognize that an August Ironman fits pretty poorly in a Kona focus season. Kona was yeah, really- I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that. <laughs> That's pretty tight. Kona's usually eight weeks after Mont Blanc. And that's not an optimal window. You can't hit Mont-Tremblant with A-level fitness and expect to ride that out all the way to Kona, for me at least. So what I have to do is this very delicate balance. I'm going to have to arrive in Tremblant, this is the plan at least, with kind of my B game and hope that that's going to be enough to win. And hope is never a fantastic strategy, but if Kona is going to be the focus or a focus of the season, then I simply can't bring my A game to Tremblant and expect to have it in Kona. So I have to be disciplined, I have to rein things in a little bit, Show up to Tromblon a little bit less fit, maybe a little bit heavier, a little bit more relaxed in terms of attitude, and then hopefully have a great race there and be on the upswing to Kona still. This year, it didn't work out like that. I kind of peaked around Tromblon, which wasn't exactly deliberate, but that was what happened. Um, and then it was a real grind. I actually bounced back from Tromblon really, really well physically. It kind of shocked myself. Like a week after Tromblon, I felt fresh again physically. However, mentally, I was still pretty fried. And winning an Ironman in particular, there's just a ton of demands on you. And it's all, it's all very positive stuff, but everyone wants to get a soundbite. Everyone wants to do a shoot or something like that. Lots of interviews.
0: Everyone wants a podcast recording.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm always happy to do. And you you have to capitalize on those opportunities because they're, they're sometimes few and far between, but it's also just really draining. And it it set me up for a, you know, a difficult week after Mont-Tremblant set me up for a difficult month leading into Kona. And it just was, was very draining. So this year I'd approach that differently. Uh, What else is on my race schedule? I'd also like to do a spring Ironman to be decided. I'm on Texas and and the St. George North American Championships. And there's gonna be another Ironman in July, or I should say a full distance race, which may or may not be Ironman branded, which I can't announce yet, but it's in July. And we're gonna gonna leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be kind of the focus of the first part of the season, that's the plan.
0: So I see a bit of a conspiracy here because I just signed up for uh, Victoria 70.3, and this is the first time in a while that you're not going back. So
2: No pro race announced so yeah. far at Victoria, unfortunately,
0: because I, I just love that race. I blame it on conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an exciting season, though. Um, and I know lots of people will be, well, probably even more people than last year will be following your performance because you've just been killing it so far, and every year seems to be an improvement, so... Um, so you've built up a huge fan base, a bunch of dedicated followers who I know from my own personal experience, love your, your technical background and the way you don't dance around certain subjects. Um, but it's, it's just been fantastic to follow you as an athlete and as a friend, like it's, it's really cool to get that insight that I get speaking to you directly, but also seeing what you post online and how honest it is and how nothing really differs from what you post versus what you, you tell me. Um, so it's, it's just that transparency I love to see. And I think more athletes need to follow that, that kind of equation.
2: Oh, thanks, Andrew. I, I wish I could say it was a planned, deliberate thing, but yeah, just I think it comes pretty naturally being open and transparent and, you know, to other to other pros or people who are listening, I would say don't be, I, I was apprehensive about sharing certain things. I think there's pressure to have a narrative that's always positive. You think that's what your sponsors want. Um, you, you never want, you don't. You assume people don't want to hear about your tough patches or your, your mishaps or your failures, but it's a much more compelling story, I think, and I think most people would agree. When athletes and stuff show more of their human side and more of their screw ups, um, it's ultimately a much more relatable message than just someone who's posting cherry picking only their best workouts and races and days and photos and filters and stuff to put on Instagram.
0: I think it's the whole Facebook syndrome where people only show the good side of their lives, totally so you get the filtered aspect of it, and it leads to a lot of issues psychologically with people because they think everyone's better than me. Because everything they're posting is fantastic, but you never see the bad side. But that transparency is just, it's so helpful as someone on the outside looking in, just seeing this is a real person. This isn't someone who's perfect in every way, but someone I can actually aspire to being like.
2: Mm, Yeah, and I I have a real love-hate relationship with social media. (laughs) I talked to some older pros who kind of lament the good old days where Pros were just expected to perform in the race course, and that was kind of the end of their job description. Maybe do a handful of appearances for sponsors and, and shoots and such. Now, it's almost like it's a dual job. You have to train and race well, but you also have to be a digital marketing expert. And that's an essential part of the job description now. And I would say that it actually influenced the sponsorship more than, more than results to a large extent. Um, so I, I really love some of the meaningful interaction I have on my social media, and it's great. But I'm also aware of how how even just opening Instagram or something on my phone affects me emotionally. Just scrolling through the feed, and it's not positive for the most part. Um, it's definitely something that uh, has a has a negative effect on me by and large. Um, so mixed feelings on that. So I want to ask you a follow up
1: on that because you've you've spent some time talking about you know your responsibilities to your sponsors, but um, and certainly being a savvy social marketer has to do with sponsorship responsibilities but what about your uh, you know quote-unquote responsibilities to your fans uh i know i've heard you speak about um about taking breaks or taking little um stepping away a little bit from social media uh how do you think about that do you have a a structured approach to it or or do you just take those those social media vacations when you feel like you're being a little bit um overextended
2: in that in that respect In general, I've had to adopt a more structured approach to my entire career because you have to recognize it's developed from what was a hobby and then kind of a glorified sideline gig and now a full time job. So, everything from how I do my taxes to how I interact with fans and followers has had to change out of necessity. And there wasn't some number of followers I hit where I suddenly had to change everything. But for example, I used to spend a large amount of time interacting with people behind the scenes through direct messages, and a lot of awesome, meaningful interaction happened then. But sometime when I, my followers got over 10,000 or something, it got to the point where I could get you know 100 direct messages across multiple platforms per day. Oh, man. And that was eating up like two hours of my time. And as meaningful and awesome as that community inter- interaction was, it wasn't making me fitter. It wasn't supporting my sponsors. It wasn't driving my bottom line. And sometimes it wasn't even making me feel good. So I kind of had to make the decision to cut that out. So these days, I focus very much on responding to all my comments or any, anything that requires a response um, and, and reading all of them for sure. But I don't even open direct messages on any platform, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And it's been kind of liberating because I think we can all relate to just the, the million ways people can contact us now. Just, just like, I think I counted at one point and there were 20 different email addresses or direct messages or comments or tweets or whatever, 20 different ways people could reach me. I'm just one person at the end of the day. I don't even have an agent most of the time, let alone a PR firm around me. So I just simply can't keep up with that, that volume of communication. And I think as a, as a pretty introverted, inherently people pleasing person, I just found it extremely, extremely draining. So I'm learning to set some better limits around social media in particular. And that means taking some time off at key points. Um, I didn't really post at all the week after Kona when I was in Maui with my partner, which we'd created a little bit of content there. But I really didn't want to spend my whole vacation behind my phone looking at everything through a lens, because I think that just leads to a, a pretty unfulfilling experience in life.
0: That's well, not really a vacation at that point. You're just working at a different location.
2: Yeah, and, and Andrew kind of was just touching on one of the real challenges of this career and really any self-employed person It's this job in particular You can't hang up the coat and hat at the end of the day and and call it quits It's it's just a job that follows you 24 7 And that's one thing that I love about it in a way And uh, this job affords a ton of flexibility and that's amazing I can I can train and race pretty much anywhere in the world every month of the year if I wanted to But it's really hard to create separation between work and the rest of your life And even that concept of work-life balance that wasn't even a term that was in my lexicon going back a couple of years. That's only now a recent thing. So what happened now that I'm viewing triathlon more as a career or a job? Is that a positive thing? Perhaps not. How can I get back to when it was just kind of a carefree pastime? Will I ever get back to that point? These are the kinds of things I'm wrestling with. And don't get me wrong. It's a career I feel tremendously privileged to have this opportunity to pursue, but it's not without its own unique challenges as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think as long
1: as you're, you know, up front, and you always have been with the, the expectations that you set for folks who want to get in touch with you. And you, you know, you're really great about responding to comments. I think that no one can really hold that against you. And that's, this seems like a smart move. Thanks, Michael.
0: All right. Is there anything else that uh, that Michael, you wanted to ask or that Cody, you wanted to bring up?
1: Well, just um, I, I'm always curious, given how uh, plugged in Cody is into the, uh, the the technology of the sport. What's the uh, if you were to put your finger on it, what's what's your what's the thing that you're most looking forward to trying in uh, in the new year, whether it be a new piece of tech or uh, a new training modality? What do you think?
2: So I've always been really interested in aerodynamics. That was one of my areas of focus during my physics undergrad. I think aerodynamics are reaching a relatively mature point in triathlon now, at least within the confines of the existing rules. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of of huge breakthroughs there. We're kind of just eking out these marginal gains now. I think there's the most gains to be made in exercise science still, which is still a pretty immature science. And there's still some fascinating discourse in the literature and stuff. Um, But one point in particular, I don't want to tip our hand too much here, but Andrew and I have been working on some interesting cooling related technologies, and we're going to leave it at that because so much of race performance is heat limited. Andrew's, Andrew's grimacing right now. Yeah. I'll, I'm just going to leave it at that and hopefully I haven't already overstepped, but we're working on some cool things in the the whole realm of cooling right now. Well, Andrew and I can talk about that
1: offline and we can decide whether or not that stays in the show. <laughs> cool.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's fair. Uh, it's, uh, I don't think it's any secret to anyone who's listening to this, who's listened to past episodes that it's a huge priority of mine. So that's, that's not really a surprise. It's not really tipping our hands too much, but it's, I agree. It's a huge part of it. And having like myself experienced Kona heat, um, you just stand around and sweat and you don't even have to move, or at least I don't have to move before I start sweating. Maybe it's different in your case, Cody, but, uh, um, it's just depressive and I can't imagine exercising under those conditions. So being able to limit that, uh, that heat buildup internally would be a huge part of it. so that, that is something that I'm, I think will be kind of the next key to unlocking another level of performance for athletes.
1: Yeah, that, I, I totally agree. I think, um, especially in those conditions, um, that is very much a limiter for performance because just, just think about how, if you've ever raced uh, for all of our listeners out there, if you've ever raced in a, in a hot race and you were smart about the way you were, you were, you were doing it, you probably had modified pace targets, modified power targets on the bike, modified pace targets for the run to deal with the conditions. So if there was, uh, some better way of uh, of keeping that core temperature low then you could potentially race at a higher intensity you're not metabolically limited at that point you're limited by um, thermal regulation so um, i I think that's a that's an awesome answer and also Cody you're playing to your um, you're playing to your audience at least with Andrew and I <laughs> in talking about in talking about heat <laughs> transfer as being you know the thing that you're most excited about yeah well done kudos especially for someone who wants to be a Kona
2: specialist eventually
0: mm-hmm
1: Right. Um, well, listen, I uh, I really enjoyed this. And as always, it's uh, it's, a, it's a ton of fun talking to you, Cody. And uh, I always learn a thing or two. So um, again, I want to say thank you for taking the time out of your, um, I guess you're just starting to come and ramp back up, but out of your regardless busy
2: schedule to uh, come on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you both for having me on the show.
0: And is there anything you want to mention? I'm sure most people already know your social media following, but if you want to mention your, uh, your
2: profiles. Yeah, sure. You can find my website, at codybeals.com and that'll point you to my social media I kind of focus mostly on instagram these days and uh yeah hold me accountable for putting out some some more of those feature length blog articles over the off season because i should really get back on that
1: <laughs> <laughs> once you do that metabolic testing on the uh, on the treadmill uh, i
2: definitely want to hear about it all right i'll keep you posted on that suffer fest <laughs>
0: <laughs> hopefully there's not too many more instagram stories of blowing up treadmills and things like that <laughs> <laughs>
2: hope not
1: your devices at least,
0: yeah. Yeah, you can go blow up someone else's next (laughs) time.
1: (laughs) And uh, as always, thank you very much for tuning in and listening. And uh, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you write us a review, that is bonus.
0: Thanks, everyone.